to Exodus chapter 25 as we pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. Uh, we are at the point in Exodus where God has given His law to His people. Uh, he has confirmed His covenant with them. And then where we left off last Lord's Day, uh, God has invited Moses to come up to the mountain to where God's glory is dwelling there on Mount Sinai. And God's going to give him further instruction. And so a great deal of that instruction that God's going to give to Moses is concerning his tabernacle, his sanctuary. And so uh, actually this morning, uh, we're going to look at three chapters in Exodus. Uh, but I want us to get just kind of a big picture of what's taking place here. So I'm just going to read a, a small portion of this today. But I hope that we can get the, the big picture of what it is God is doing here among his people and why he is giving this instruction to Moses concerning his sanctuary, his tabernacle, the tent where he will meet with his people. So I'm going to read Exodus 25 verses 1 through 9, and then we're going to talk about chapters 25 through 27. So out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read God's holy word for us. So again, remembering we left off there in Exodus 24 where Moses had entered the cloud. He had gone up the mountain. And he was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And then we read this. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, and the ephod and the, for the breastpiece. And let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. If you would... Pray with me. Fathers, we've already heard from your word this morning from the writer of Hebrews. Well, we know that what you did there in the, the exodus among your people, it, it was pointing towards Christ. It was pointing towards the, the, the great sacrifice that would come. It was pointing towards the great high priest that would come. It was pointing towards the gospel of our Lord. And so, Father, I pray as we look to these chapters today that we might see more clearly the gospel. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to repent and place their full trust, their full faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would move through the power of your Spirit, that you would open up their eyes to see, that, that you would open up their hearts to believe the truth of your word, that they might repent and have faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, often in our study of God's Word, I've, I've taken us back to the beginning, back to Genesis, back to that foundation where God created man. And I'll remind you this morning of something we read there in Genesis 1 about God's creation of man. It says this, so God created man in His own image. and the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. It's important for us to come back to that passage often because 
the temptation that exists in our hearts and the temptation we see throughout God's Word is for us to create God in our image. Rather than worshiping God for who He is and who His Word says He is, so often we start with who we are. And we shape, we, we fashion a God after our own desires. A God after our own image. And so, for example, we see this in Egypt. And when we see early in Exodus, God rescuing His people from their slavery there, we have a nation of people who have fashioned gods in their own image. They're hybrids of created animals and of created man. They see Pharaoh even as a god himself. And so what the Egyptians did there was they basically looked to their own interests, their own hearts, and they came up with gods in their own image. And that temptation didn't go away in Egypt. And in fact, that temptation is still very much alive today. But rather than fashioning gods out of gold that are half bull and half man, well, we've done things a bit differently. But, but we still create God in our own image. And it looks this way. You, you take, for example, the area of sin. And so many in our culture don't like to hear someone say that what they're doing is wrong. We don't like to think about uh, being judged or judging others. And so what we do is we tend to fashion a God and create a God in our own image. And so we then come up with a God who doesn't judge. We, we think about God as the God who accepts me, accepts you, just the way we are. And we don't fashion that because of what the Word says. We fashion that because of our hearts. You think, for example, of our desires. The, the things that our heart draws us towards. The, the relationships. The, the things we do. So often, we, we explain those things, especially when God's Word says something contrary to them. It's saying, well, well, well this isn't a bad thing. This is what my heart leads me to. And, and, and I need to trust in my heart. And, and surely, God wouldn't put these desires in my heart if He didn't want me to do this. And so again, we come up with this God in our own image. This accepting, loving, non-judgmental God. And we do it in the area of worship. So often we think about worship from our perspective. And so as I've mentioned before, uh, we say things like, well, well, I didn't get much out of worship today. Or I really like it when we sing this way or do this thing or, or, or preach this way because I get a lot out of that. Or I don't get much out of that. I was reminded of this just yesterday. I had to run down to Dollar General to our, our Bloomfield Walmart, pick up a couple of things. And if you frequent Dollar General, you know the lines don't move very fast. So there's lots of time to eavesdrop on the people in front of you. And so I'm standing there behind these two people and they're talking. And, and I was encouraged. One was inviting the other to their church. And as they were inviting this other to their church, I thought, well, that's great. That's great to hear that the person who was invited re responded very loudly by saying, well, you know what? I go to such and such church. It wasn't ours. could have been, but it wasn't. I go to such and such church, but honestly, I just don't get anything out of it. So I jumped up in their face and I said, it doesn't matter what you get out of it. It's what God gets out of it. No, I didn't do that. I thought about it. But it was the Bloomfield Dollar General. I would have got beat up and it would have been in the Nelson County Gazette and but, but I wanted to say that. Because as, as much as I make that reference, that, that really is how we talk so often. It's about us. 
It's about what we get out of it. And, and all that goes back to this temptation that was there among even the Egyptians to fashion a God in our own image. When we make those statements, when, when we leave church with that thought in our mind, what I got out of it, what I didn't get out of it, we are basically creating God and creating worship from a man-centered perspective. We are not creating it based on what God has said. And that's why this passage, among so many, is so crucially important to us. Because here we have in these three chapters, here we have in this holiness where God has descended and He's called Moses up to the mountain. Here we have God saying, Moses, I'm going to tell you exactly how to worship me. He doesn't say, Moses, now you just go down there and you guys figure out what people like. You know, Figure out how they like to worship. Feel it. Just just. Whatever makes them feel good. Whatever inspires them. As one commentator said in this passage, we see that God does not leave it to human beings to define the type of worship they will offer Him. God knows what is best. And He told Moses in detail. And so what I hope we can see as we walk through this passage is that the significance of that detail. It is very easy in these chapters to, to miss the forest because of the trees. It's very easy to get distracted. And that's kind of why I've decided to handle all these chapters at once because there's a big picture here that God's people need to understand. And it begins with this, that first point there in your outline. God desires fellowship with His people. What we see fundamentally in these chapters is that God desires fellowship with His people. God is is the initiator. God is the one who's taking the initiative to tell Moses, here's what I want you to do, because God is the one who wants to fellowship with His people. And notice there in verse 8 what He says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And that is significant. Because up to this point in Exodus, God has not dwelt in the midst of His people. Now, God's been there. We saw, for example, at the burning bush there, God comes and His presence dwells there, and He gives that important instruction to Moses, but but then it's gone. It was temporary. And then we see as God leads His people out of Egypt, and He's leading them on the Exodus to the land of promise to Canaan. He leads them through that pillar of fire and that smoke, but but it's, it's at a distance It's not in their midst. And even here, what's taking place? Here, God's holiness has descended on this mountain. We call it God's mountain. But the people, remember what He says to them? There's a barrier. And if you cross that, if even one of your animals crosses that, God tells Moses, they're going to die. And then we have this point where God invites Moses along with the elders, along with others to come part of the way there. But he still says to Moses, listen, you're the only one who can come into my presence. Why? Because Moses was the mediator. He was the one who came to God on behalf of the people, went to the people on behalf of God. But but what we see here that's fundamental then is God is telling his people, listen, I want you to construct a tabernacle so that I can dwell in your midst. And what we'll see follows in the Scripture, Numbers chapter 2, is this description where when God's people would set up camp, the tabernacle would be in the very middle of the camp. And God's people wouldn't just set up camp around the tabernacle, they would all set up camp facing the tabernacle. And so wherever God's people were in camp, right in the middle of their camp was the tabernacle, was the presence of God. And their focus was to be singular. It was to be on God's 
holy presence among them. And so God gives these descriptions, starting in verse 10 there, he tells Moses that they're to construct the Ark of the Covenant. That this would be central to the tabernacle. This would be the place where the glory of God would dwell. That the, the Ark of the Covenant would be fashioned as a, a wooden chest, but then it would be overlaid with gold. It would be majestic. It would be holy. It would be something he told his people they weren't allowed to touch it. Well, that's a problem because the camp's going to move. <laughs> So it would have rings on the side and they would put poles through the rings and then people very carefully and very respectfully they could pick up the ark by those poles. They couldn't touch it directly. It was covered. The top of it was the mercy seat of God. This is where if you've seen renderings and depictions you've got the cherubim with those wings spread out facing one another. Their heads bowed downward covering that mercy seat. This is the place from which God said he would communicate to his people. Verse 22 there, he says to Moses there, I will meet with you from the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so this would be in the most holy of holies. It would be in the section of the tabernacle that we'll talk about in a moment, the most holy place. And then there'd be a couple of other fixtures outside of that. He goes on to describe there in verse 22, the table for bread. And so there was this table set to the side and, and very specific, very detailed descriptions given of the plates and the bread. There were to be 12 loaves. These would have been different than the loaves you probably have in your house. They're, they're flat bread. Remember unleavened bread, so they would stack. And there were to be 12 of them. They were representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And this bread was always to be there in the tabernacle as a constant reminder to the people of God's provision for His people. And then there, in that outside, that holy of holies, in that holy place, there was to be a golden lampstand. This too was to be fashioned out of pure gold. It would provide light at the entrance to the tabernacle. The priests were told to keep the oil in it. The lamps lit continually. It was symbolic. It was a reminder of what we see throughout the Scripture, that God is light. And so there within this structure, within all these details that God gives Moses, this, this ark and this table and this lampstand, these were all symbolic of the presence of God, the presence He desired to have with His people. They, they were pictures of His presence and pictures of His provision. And really what they took God's people back to was back to creation. Because in creation, what you see is God establishes for His people a sanctuary, a tabernacle. That's what the garden was. That the garden had boundaries. The garden was the place where God dwelled with His people. Now, there wasn't an ark there, and there wasn't a, a lamp stand there, a table for bread there. You, you didn't need any of those symbols because God Himself was there. God Himself dwelt in the garden. He walked among His creation, among Adam and Eve. The Scripture tells us they had perfect fellowship with God in the garden, in that sanctuary, in that tabernacle. And so why the need for another? Well, you know the story. Adam and Eve sinned against God, that they broke God's commandments. And so God removed them from His creation sanctuary. And so what we see here very clearly as Moses is given this instruction is that reminder that, that since creation, God has desired to dwell with His people. God has desired to have perfect fellowship with His people. 
But, but what breaks that fellowship is not that God's desire changes, but it's the heart of man and it's our sin. And so from Adam and Eve to you and I today, <laughs> if you trace our family tree, our genealogy, you will see a common trait. Sin, 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 sin. We inherit the sin of our forefathers. We are sinners. And the issue then that comes to surface here in the tabernacle is this then, point two, that sin separates people from God. That sin separates people from God. And so just as that sin separated Adam and Eve from God, they were removed from that sanctuary and creation, so sin separates God's people from Him. And so we see that separation here in the tabernacle. God gives all these descriptions in chapters 26 and 27. He talks about curtains and walls. He talks about the most holy place and the holy place. So you can look at a at a rendering of this, probably you might have some in your Bible or you may have some in some study resources, but essentially what you'll see there is the way the tabernacle was constructed What was you had these two main rooms in it. And when the priest would walk in, they would walk into what was called the holy place. And that's where the lampstand was. And that's where the bread, the, the table for the bread was. And then there was this, this veil, this curtain that separated the, the, the holy place from the most holy place. That's what... Pastor Matt read out of Hebrews earlier, that most holy place where the high priest would go into once a year to make that sacrifice, that atonement for sin. And inside that most holy place, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the presence of God dwelt was in that most holy place. But then outside of those two rooms in that structure, you had this courtyard. And that courtyard was then surrounded by a, a fabric, a linen wall. And so when you would walk through that into the courtyard, the very first thing you would see was this enormous bronze altar. And this is what God describes to Moses and what they're to construct. This bronze altar was the place where people would make sacrifices, where the priest would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so you think about this just visually. When a worshiper would come, they would enter into this courtyard. The very first thing they would see was this huge altar it would signify to them you cannot enter the presence of god without a sacrifice a sacrifice must be made for your sin but the writer of hebrews tells us in hebrews 9 without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins and so what we see here very clearly is that this sin of god's people it separated them from god there needed to be atonement and so there's a lot of parallels you begin to see there, the tabernacle to even the mountain that Moses is on now. But one commentator notes this, on the mountain, Moses went up and experienced God's presence, but at the tabernacle, only the high priest could enter the most holy place. On the mountain, the elders were able to come up halfway up the mountain, and at the tabernacle, the priest were able to go just into that holy place. On the mountain, the people waited at the bottom of the mountain, and at the tabernacle, the people were only able to enter the courtyard. Over and over and over again, this screams separation. And so what we clearly see being established here in all these details is that the tabernacle reminds us God desires to have fellowship with His people, but sin separates us from God. Our culture embraces the first part of that statement and rejects the second part. People desire the presence of God. 
People don't have a problem when you start talking about God being at work and God's presence again. Again, think about when you know people that suffer. Maybe they don't go to church. They don't claim to be Christians. But when suffering, when something happens that's outside of their control, what's the very first thing soft they ask for? Yeah, will you pray for me? That they cry out to God. That there's desperation, please. God, if you're there, will you please? In those moments, they usually don't have a big problem with this notion that God desires fellowship with man, that God wants to dwell with man. In fact, that's what they want. God, make yourself real to me. God, will you intervene right now? God, will you do something right now? Our culture cries out for that so often. But the second part of that statement, the tabernacle reminds us that sin separates us from God. That the very same people who will cry out for God's intervention are often the same people who will cry out against any notion of judgment for sin. What do you mean, I shouldn't do this? Who are you to judge me? (laughs) The heart wants what the heart wants. God wouldn't give me these desires in my heart if He didn't want me to follow through on them. I mean, what kind of cruel God would do that? Not the God that I know. The God that we've created in our image. God accepts me just the way I am. Maybe you've had the occurrence where you've tried to graciously talk to a friend about sin in their life. And you've had them say something to the effect of, well, you know what? I don't think God judges me, so I don't think you have the right to judge me either. We we, we fashion this notion of God is just kind of this, this benevolent, kind of supernatural Santa Claus grandparent, you know. He's there when we need something. He's there when we got our wish list. He's there when, when, when we need to get something from Him. But this whole idea of Him then intervening in our lives in such a way where He says we're to live this way and not live this way. And then to go so far as to say if we sin against Him, there's a consequence for that? Well, that's not the God we want. But we're reminded from the Scripture that is the God who exists. Again, I can't. Go back to this often enough. Adam and Eve in the garden, what did they do? What was so atrocious? What was so awful that it would take God then saying, okay, you cannot be in my presence any longer. You need to get out of here. What was it they did? Adam didn't beat his wife. Eve didn't murder her husband. Now their descendants, <laughs> then comes the murder. But what did they do? God said, you can have anything in this garden I have provided for you. There's an abundance for you in my sanctuary. But do not eat the tree of that fruit. And not only did He tell them not to do it, He told them what would happen if they did. If you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, what does our culture say to that? I mean, just imagine for a second 
You, you could just take a sampling from our culture, jump in a time machine, go back to the garden, and, and you have this interaction between Adam and Eve and the culture of today. And Adam and Eve are standing there covered in shame, aware of their nakedness, trying to cover themselves with leaves, just broken people who realize they've sinned against the holy God, and now they just have complete awareness of their sin and wickedness and evil, and they're overwhelmed with it. And our culture's over here saying what? What would you do? Well, God, God said not to eat this, this fruit of this tree and we ate it. What else did you do? That's all you did? Well, God won't mind that. You know? God's got lots of trees. What kind of God wouldn't let you have fruit from a tree? I mean, God's the one that made the tree and put the fruit there. I mean, what kind of twisted God would then punish you for eating the fruit from a tree that He put in the garden? Not my God. Not the God that I've created in my own image. You see, this, this is kind of the gravitational pull of our heart we need to recognize. We, we don't like this notion of God bringing down wrath because of sin. And so we often look at God like we, we tend to be ourselves. So, parents, have you ever come close to experiencing anything like well, if you do that again, I'm going to. But you didn't. Don't make me count to three. I mean five. Or ten. Well, listen. I can't do anything about it right now, but when we get home, you're going to get this. And they don't get nothing. Don't make me get up off this couch. But I don't really want to get up off the couch. So I don't. And, and that's how we tend to view God. See, we are a people who live in a land of giving out threats and we don't actually do what we said we were going to do. And then somehow we paint the picture that, well, that's just because I'm so gracious and benevolent. No, it's because we're lazy and inconsistent. And then we look at God that same way, as if God is sitting on the couch saying, well, if you eat the fruit off that tree, I'm going to get up off this couch. Now God in His holiness and His goodness and His grace and His mercy, He had very specific reasons for them not to eat of that fruit. And they did it. And because they took a bite of a piece of fruit, they were banished from the presence of God. And again, we, we think in the land of, well, you know, 20 minutes without your media. <laughs> they couldn't come back. <coughs> Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and what else? They fall short of the glory of God. And what is the result of that? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, God says. And so we see God's mercy and His grace in the garden because He doesn't just take Adam and Eve out right then. I mean, death comes. They're going to die. And every one of their descendants is going to die. But He does give them a consequence. He says, the Scripture tells us the Lord sent them out of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, to work the ground from which He was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
God was not letting them back in. Sin separated them from God. God, in the establishment of His tabernacle, is just screaming to His people, I want to dwell in your midst, but you can't just come walk into my midst. That there is separation here because of sin. But in His grace, He provides a way to be restored. Point three. God provides a way for sinful people to be reconciled to Him. And so Gold, Graham Goldsworthy wrote a, a fantastic book called According to Plan where he takes the Bible and just, here's the big picture. He, he says this, kind of summarizing what we've looked at here. He says, everything about the tabernacle speaks of three great truths. God wills to dwell among His people and to meet with them. So that's what we've talked about. God desires to have fellowship with His people. Sin separates people from God. That's what we just talked about there. And then this, he says, and God provides a way of reconciliation through sacrifice and the mediating office of the priest. And so there's this picture there where God is saying to His people, I want to dwell with you, but you can't dwell with me because of your sin, so I'm going to make a way for sin to be atoned for through this sacrificial system. But we also know, as we read earlier in Hebrews, that that sacrificial system was an old covenant. It was incomplete. couldn't do the job, but it was pointing towards the new covenant. It was pointing towards the great sacrifice of Christ. And that's why we can be overwhelmingly, awesomely humbled to consider Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was the perfect and final sacrifice. He was the one who fully atoned for sin. And so everything in Exodus 25 and 27, it is pointing straight towards the cross, straight towards the gospel, straight towards Jesus. I mean, again, remember what was God doing here? He said, he said I want to dwell among you to so make a sanctuary for me. If you've been into a store in the last three months, you know Christmas is coming. <laughs> and, and so we're going to get cards in the mail, and, and some of those are going to have verses on them. And one of those that's popular this time of year is Matthew 123, that, that proclamation to Joseph. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Jesus. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the full dwelling of God among us. He's not wrapped in a veil. He's not wrapped in, 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 in an altar before Him and in tents around Him. Jesus comes and the Scripture says He's our Emmanuel. It means God with us. John says this in John 1. He talks about in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. That, that word dwelt, that is a verb. And the noun that it's taken from, you know what it means? Tabernacle. You, you could translate John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and He tabernacled among us. God dwells in the midst of His people through His Son. He has come. He is our Emmanuel. Jesus is the tabernacle. 
And so God has given these instructions and they're just, they're just pointing people towards something greater. He tells them to have a, a golden lampstand. Jesus is the lampstand. Jesus is the true light. John 1, 9. Jesus is the one who says of Himself in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's the light that never goes out. The tabernacle had that, that table for the bread. Jesus is the true bread of life. John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As God's people entered into that courtyard surrounding the tabernacle, they were confronted with that bronze altar. Jesus is the true and better altar. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, we have an altar, and it's Jesus. He's the true and better sacrifice. He's the one that every sacrifice was pointing towards. The tabernacle had that, that curtain, a veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place. What did Jesus do on the cross? He tore the veil from top to bottom. So that we might respond to this glorious truth. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there was a day when you and I would have been at the foot of that mountain and there would have been a line and if we crossed it, done. And now we live on this side of the cross where God says, oh no, no, now, now you can come on in. And now you can dwell with me. And now you can be in the very presence of God. And you can enter into the holy of holies, a new heaven and a new earth. And you can worship me. The day's coming. We won't just sing songs about him. We will see songs to him in his presence. And we can do that because of the blood of Christ. We can do that because of the blood of Christ. We can do that. Because of the blood of Christ. And so here we are. Centuries away. From this instruction God gave to his people. This instruction that had to just at times confound him. Because what God was saying is. Build this with your hands. Do this in your efforts. Have faith in me. Have trust in me. But here's what you've got to do. And here's this confusion. How can we ever be made clean? How can we ever be made righteous? God says make the sacrifice. But then he tells us the sacrifice isn't sufficient. And so people are struggling trying to become righteous by the work of their hands. And they realize they can't. And it's all pointing towards Christ. Well, Christ comes. He dies for sin. The scripture is so clear. We put our trust and faith in him. Nothing we can do can achieve righteousness before a holy God. God doesn't want our works or our merits. We do works in response to our faith, not to earn our faith. And yet here we are centuries later, but we still struggle with the same thing. We have this notion that we're going to stand before God with our scales. Well, God, my good outweighs my bad. We're going to stand before God with our, our spiritual resume. Well, you know, God, look at all this stuff I did. I, yeah, there's some bad stuff down here and uh, these years weren't good. But look, God, I did good. Look at me, God. Here we are struggling with the same things because so often we are not trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ. We're trusting in ourselves. 
And so the temple reminds us, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, it, it reminds us that we can't put our hope and our faith in anything else. And if your hope and your faith is in anything else today, you will be disappointed. And if you are worshiping a God of your own creation, your disappointment very well may be an eternal one. We need to remember our salvation comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There was a Baptist pastor about 150 years ago who dealt with the same issue. People with the same struggles. Thinking that somehow their, their works would save them. If they tried hard enough, it would save them. So he wrote down some words as a reminder to them. And in just a moment, we're going to sing these words. But just consider this for a second. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, how precious is the flow that, that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friend, if you're trusting in anything else other than the blood today, walk away from it, run away from it, and run to the gospel of Christ. If you would, stand together as I pray for us. Father, we thank You for a picture that You gave Your people thousands of years ago that is still a picture for us today, that, that tabernacle. A picture of your, your holiness. A picture of your, your dwelling among your people. And yet a reminder to us of the devastating eternal consequences of sin that it separates us from you. But Lord, a picture there of sacrifice, of atonement, of the need for blood, for the forgiveness of sin that points us directly to the cross. Jesus is our tabernacle. Jesus is our light. Jesus is our bread. Jesus is our salvation. What can wash away our sins? Nothing, Lord. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So, Lord, help that to be our confession as we sing. And, Lord, I do. I pray for anyone here who's yet to make that confession. God, that you might work the power of your Spirit. That you might lead them today even to come talk to me, talk to one of other pastors, so that we might counsel with them, pray with them. Father, help our hope and our trust to be in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is our prayer. This is our song. This is our worship. We offer it in the name of Christ. Amen.